Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published quarterly by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, premiering February 6, 2015, we'll be speaking with French journalist Patrice de Beer. His piece for the winter 2015 edition of the journal, Europe, Flailing or Divided, considers internal and external threats to the continent and problems with the EU response. We'll also spotlight other top stories in the issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the website West Wing Reports. Nomination hearings are underway for Ashton Carter, President Obama's choice to head the Pentagon. He's expected to have a smooth confirmation, though Republicans are challenging him on what they see as a timid response by the White House to, among other things, ISIS and the Russian incursion into Ukraine. Carter has already made news telling lawmakers he's inclined to support arming Ukrainians. That's something his would-be boss, President Obama, continues to oppose. Carter is also joining the chorus of voices here who are calling for an end to sequestration. That's the term used to describe across-the-board spending cuts that have hurt the Pentagon badly in recent years. He says it jeopardizes national security. And speaking of national security, a big new study is out on energy use in America. A consortium of renewable energy companies and Bloomberg notes that the U.S. economy has grown 8% since 2007, but we're using 2% less energy. One of the big drivers has been the growth over that time of wind and solar power. The study notes that for many utilities, wind power is now the cheapest way to generate electricity. The cost of solar has fallen quickly, too. The study says the U.S. power industry is, quote, decarbonizing. And a look at the week ahead, German Chancellor Angela Merkel visits the White House on Monday, topping the agenda for her talks with the president, or Russia, and nuclear talks with Iran. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Gunfire in Paris last month began 72 hours of bloody chaos. Among the dead were three French-born radicalized Islamic terrorists, 10 editors and cartoonists at the determinedly disruptive satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo, three police officers, and four hostages at a Jewish market. The episode sent a chill of fear across France and throughout Europe, especially where there are significant Muslim communities. But that was hardly the only source of fear across the continent. Europe Under Fire is the cover line on the current issue of World Policy Journal. The lead story is Europe Flailing or Divided. And to discuss it, we have the author Patrice de Beer, a former editor of the French daily Le Monde and a frequent WPJ contributor. I spoke with him earlier. Patrice de Beer, welcome to World Policy On Air. Welcome to you, too. You start with recent efforts towards independence by the Scots and Catalans, which you say may actually be a rare vote of confidence in the much-faulted European Union. Explain that. The Scots and the Catalans feel that they have been uh, sort of oppressed for centuries by Britain and Spain. So you have a majority of people in in both these, uh, these territories who want either independence 
or uh, wider autonomy more in a more federative state just like the the US for instance but uh, the reason why I'm feeling a bit optimistic more than uh, many other commentators is that these two uh, countries countries to be see their future as micro-members of the European Union rather than small morsels of their current states. Uh, they see Brussels are more, as more benign than either London or Madrid and as a guarantor rather than a threat. It's, uh, it's a bit uh, the same process that uh, began with Eastern European states when they liberated from Moscow after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and they saw Europe at that time uh, as a way to strengthen their democracies, to develop their economies, and to protect their newly acquired freedom. So in a sense, uh, there is optimism in, in seeing people wanting to join freely the European Union in 2015. But for most Europeans and their leaders, you write, the EU seems a breakthrough idea gone bad, the, quote, limping towards an uncertain future. Remind us of the EU's initial promise and the expectations for it. Well, uh, the EU began uh, only a few years after World War II. You uh, remember, not personally, uh, that uh, at that time Europe was totally devastated. Everything had to be rebuilt. Uh, there were hatred between uh, the Germans and their, their neighbors, uh, starting with France. And this is in these circumstances that some people uh, were seeing much further, like Jean Monnet, had to create uh, a new uh, community between France and Germany, which were to put together their steel and coal uh, industries to help rebuild Europe. And on this was built first um, the common market, then the European uh, Union, as a way to put uh, b behind ourselves uh, the years of war and to build peace, democracy, and prosperity. And what, in a nutshell, would you say is the EU's image today, inside its boundaries and beyond? Well, uh, people have got, have got used to living within the EU, the generations that uh, created the, the, the common market and the EU uh, and who have lived throughout the Second World War are, are gone, or more, more or less. And the new generations, uh, well, they, they take all this uh, uh, for, for granted. And uh, they are quite unhappy to see that uh, things are not working as well as, as expected, that the economic situation and the social situations are very difficult, and that their lives have not, have not improved and have even uh, deteriorated in the, in the last years. Strikingly symbolic as EU weakness, you write, were its last two commission chairmen. Remind us who they were and why you say that about them. Well, I'm talking mostly of two of the previous uh, commission chairmen, the former Luxembourg Prime Minister Jacques Samper and the former Portuguese Prime Minister uh, Barroso, uh, which uh, were in charge, uh, uh, the first between 1995 and 1999 and the second between 2004 and uh, the end of last year. These people were not chosen as visionaries, but as, uh, let's say, small-time managers, people who didn't have a uh, lot of spine, people who didn't have many ideas, 
but people who could uh, be manipulated by uh, the major European countries, Britain, Germany and France, and the people who didn't have much personality, and were represented the thing people hate, that is to say, bu uh, Brussels bureaucracy, uh, faceless uh, bureaucracy that was uh, ruling people in daily lives uh, in a way that they really didn't like, and uh, were also criticized uh, very bitterly by the very same people who had put them in charge. What's your take on the new chair, also an ex-premier of Luxembourg, and his potential to change and uh, recharge the EU? Well, first of all, it is strange to see that one of the smallest countries of the Union, Luxembourg, which has a population of half a million, should have had in 20 years' time uh, two chairmen of the Union. So uh, there are pluses and minuses. I will start with the, the minus. The minus is that the new chairman, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, has been tainted by the scandal of secret tax agreements between Luxembourg and of uh, a thousand top world corporations like IKEA, Amazon, JP Morgan, and others, and a scandal which is called LuxLeaks. And uh, this has uh, given him and uh, his country a very bad image. So that's uh, the minus. But it could also be a blessing in disguise because to regain his credibility, uh, Juncker has uh, pushed forward very bold measures to stop uh, the other EU countries from doing what he had himself uh, been doing before. But at the same time, he's, a, he's an interesting person because he, 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 he tries to, to be a little bit more visionaries uh, than the others. Uh, he wants to improve uh, the dynamism uh, of the EU. He wants to instill more consensus uh, and more decision-making within the, the Union. Uh, the new commission uh, is, uh, looks stronger than before. The president of the European Council, he's a strong personality, the, the former uh, Polish prime minister Donald Tusk. Uh, the foreign minister of the EU has more personality and a little bit more knowledge of the foreign uh, world than um, his, uh, her predecessor, Catherine Ashton. So in a sense, things seem a little bit better. Well, whether it, it is not too late, we, we'll find out. Whether he will achieve what he says he wants to achieve, whether the major countries of the EU will let, let him do it, that remains to be seen. Well, let's focus on the last part. You write that the questionable caliber of leaders of EU member states and the limited horizon of their thinking also work against collaboration and the compromise of diverse national interests. Talk more about that. Well, uh, Europe is no better and no worse than the rest of the world. Uh, you can certainly uh, quote the name of uh, the names of many American, European, or world politicians, but at the same time, it is very difficult to find the single name of a real statesman uh, within uh, the world today, and uh, we see how unhappy this is. So. Uh, we, we have to live with this, but uh, it is difficult to live with uh, politicians uh, who, uh, who are not visionaries like the, some of their predecessors, the French President Mitterrand, German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, or the British Premier Margaret Thatcher, people who had vision and know 
We have people who uh, are short-sighted, who only see uh, the future as the next general elections, uh, and who, who don't seem to, to have a vision that would uh, uh, instill uh, optimism among the European people. There is an interesting quote by uh, uh, the, the new chairman, Jean-Claude Juncker. He said to The Economist some time ago, we all know what to do. To, uh, to reform Europe, but we don't know how to get re-elected once we have done it. And this is uh, the best answer I can give you. We don't have people who think that I have to do this because it's right. Whatever happens in, le- in the next elections, in the next generation, people will thank me for that. You also fault the media for an inability to focus public attention on fundamental issues and critical developments as opposed to tabloid titillation. Yes, uh, it's tabloid or TV news, news channels. Of course, when you have an event like uh, the, the Paris massacre earlier this month, these tabloids and TV news channels are useful because they, they give you minute-per-minute minute details of the developments. But uh, when uh, these medias become uh, repetitive, they have to have headlines every 15 minutes, so they, they develop uh, issues that are totally irrelevant to, to our future. They uh, give much more importance to secondary events that we would never really care about. And uh, when they they reflect the short-termism of our politicians and of our societies, I think that uh, they they don't help. They look for the minute thing that uh, goes wrong, that uh, can attract attention much more at uh, the more meaningful ones. But that's not Europe only. Talk about the way you see a loss of public faith in the EU and national governments leading to further fracturing and polarization of the political process, uh, the rise we see in more extreme views, parties, and leaders. Well, uh, many people in Europe uh, have lost faith in their futures. Promises have been botched. The vision thing uh, is, is gone. And... Uh, People see the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, jobs being outsourced by whatever government, left, right, or center. And this is not terribly appealing. And then they see these, these new people, or old people who have revamped, revamped themselves and uh, who promise them uh, that things will change, that uh, everything uh, went wrong because of, of present politicians, that Europe is the, is the cause of uh, all evils. And uh, it is true that they are ap- ap- attracting a lot of voters. See, maybe this Greece might be led by... Uh, uh, left-wing populist movement, then these populist movement are developing in Italy, uh, in, uh, in Spain. The, the extreme right is booming in Britain uh, with UKIP, in France with the National Front. In Germany, you have had the, the demonstrations by people uh, who wanted to keep foreigners out, because another tool used by this extremist movement, this populist movement, is that not, uh, there are two evils two uh, reasons for the the, the post-situation we are in. One is Europe, and the other one is immigration. People uh, are are told that uh, if we didn't have that many black people, Muslim people, uh, things would be much better. 
But I think this is a fraud if you look at a country like Germany. Germany uh, is losing population every year because Germans are not making babies anymore. So if uh, Germany was not imported foreign labor, then uh, gradually the German economy would stop. Well, considering the most extreme views, as you've just alluded, what impact do you expect from last month's uh, Charlie Hebdo massacre and related violence? Uh, beyond the swift round of anti-terrorist raids we saw, do you think that that massive outrage we saw could lead to increased public cohesion, some more political effectiveness, or uh, will this increased fear lead to even less respect for current government, more xenophobia, more repression of Muslims, uh, more fuel for Islamic uh, extremism? Well, of course, uh, the populist movements will play on more xenophobia, repression of Muslims, and so on, uh, because it's, it's short-term, it's popular, uh, and they are only looking towards next elections. But most people hope, and uh, I hope so too, that this 9-11 of, of ours, which is 1-7 uh, to 1-9 to uh, for, for us, could be a watershed, an electroshock, a wake-up call at a crucial time and could make politicians and people understand that things have to be done to stop uh, this situation, to uh, reunify the country, to, to fight against terrorism, and to make the, the necessary political, economic, and social reforms that could take us out of the present crisis and make us live more peacefully. As an optimist, for the moment at least, you say, you prefer to see Europe as a lame duck with a shot at redemption, but you fear the hard choice between a British-style customs union and a broader common economic government. Talk more about that distinction. Well, as you probably know, uh, there are two different lines in Europe, the, the British one, which is often alone, and the other, the British seeing um, uh, the Union only as an economic tool, whereas the rest of Europe uh, is more interested in seeing a global strategy uh, starting from the euro to a joint uh, economic uh, and foreign policy. And if this were to, to work, uh, well, uh, there might be reasons to be optimistic. I always want to be optimistic until the, the very last moment. It is true that the odds are not terribly positive. It, it is true that we are facing a, a lot of crisis. Is it, is it is true that uh, we look like spoiled uh, rich people uh, uh, when, when seen from, uh, from developing countries. But I still hope that uh, we can uh, limp through the crisis and rebuild ourselves. After all, uh, Europe is one of the largest economies of the world, one of the three largest economies of the world with the U.S. and China. Patrice De Beer, thank you. Thank you. Patrice De Beer is a former senior editor at London and Washington correspondent for the French Daily Le Monde and a frequent contributor to the World Policy Journal. Also featured in the current issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on Italy's secret glue, on the why and how of choosing jihad, and the melancholy of Hong Kong. Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we speak with New School University Russian expert Nina Khrushcheva, great-granddaughter of the late Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, about Putin, power, and Europe today. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.